Welcome, dear travelers, to another brief sojourn beyond the Veil of Darkness. I could say that I hate to swing the curtain open for you, but I don't, because together, my dear ones, we face this darkness, and we acknowledge it, and we give voice to those brave souls that dare to speak up. Together, we can make their weight just a little bit lighter. And tonight, dear travelers, I'd like to take you on a drive through the suburbs of my childhood. Whenever we drove through the city, the highway route would take us down this one particular street, and few things feel quite like it. There's a river on the left as we drive up, and on the right everything is uphill, and it's a gorgeous field of trees with apartments behind. The road eventually bends, and as we turn right, we turn around this massive tree. It cuts such a powerful figure into the landscape as we drive by. I would even walk by there sometimes on summer days when I didn't want to take the bus. Each time, without fail, Going up that street, I would get goosebumps. I would feel uncomfortable. I would feel seen and expected. And every time I would make it up that street corner, I would see the same person standing underneath that old tree. Which wasn't odd. This was a lovely park and I passed by it maybe once a month, if at that. It wasn't the person there that sparked a sense of wrongness. It was everything else. But regardless, I would go by and see this person there. A tall man with blue jeans, a black leather jacket, duffel bag in his left hand, leaning his back against this large tree, I would take note of the details I saw each time, remembering an extra little thing, like his brown boots, like how his hair was short but long enough to be parted to the right, slicked. I had the sense that he was handsome, but his face would disappear from memory as soon as I saw it. There was this routine, this repetition that I'd grown to expect. One night, we drove by there. It was dark. It was late. It had been raining. But there was a streetlight on the corner. In the streetlight, I saw him again, standing there with his back against the tree. I couldn't tell you if we were stopped at the light or if everything moved in slow motion, but I was looking at him. When two more people came through the trees... There was nothing to them, no distinguishing features or clothing items, but I saw they were two men. They walked up to him, and one pulled out a knife and I saw it glisten in the streetlight. I gasped, and I slapped my hand on the window when I watched them stab that knife into him. They ran away with the duffel. They left him there to die. My mom turned around and asked what was wrong. And I said, they stabbed him. I just saw someone die, Mom. But she didn't see anything there. That entire time, 
all those years I'd seen the same ghost. It was some sort of drug deal gone wrong in the 90s. Man stabbed, headline in the local paper, but nobody gave a damn. I couldn't believe it when I found it. Not because it was exciting in any way, but because it broke my heart. If I had lived there longer, then maybe I could have found his name and given him some closure, but instead I imagine he's still under that big tree on the hill, waiting for a different outcome than a knife. As much as we hope, as much as it hurts, sometimes there is no different outcome. Sometimes, all you get is me, your humble host and guide, Morgan. Let my voice be your sanctuary as we prepare to hear from Jack on this week's episode, The Crawler. Brace yourselves, dear travelers. Your descent into darkness begins now. The first instance of this that I can recall... I was a kid. The first instance of this that I can recall, I was a kid, somewhere around seven years old, and the whole family was at our grandparents' place. We live in sort of central Virginia. My dad and his brother built their houses on the closest properties they could find to their mother's place. And they're nice plots of farmland, but just like in Red Riding Hood, there's a forested area between the three of us. Sure, you could get behind the wheel and take the roads all the way around if you felt like it, but for the most part, we walked. It's not huge. It takes about half an hour to walk from one house to another. But then the forest goes on up and into the mountains, so we always had to be careful to go straight through so that we don't get lost. We're a big family. Not crazy by any means because Nana only had two sons, but I'm the youngest of four and I've got five cousins. I think we got together for a birthday in the summertime and, of course, all of us kids wanted to have fun. Our parents and grandparents were inside playing card games and drinking and we were more concerned with how much forested space we had available to hide in. I'm sure there's a name for this that I can't remember right now, but we used to play this sort of love child game between tag and hide and seek, where once the seeker finds you, you too become a seeker. So we've had games when one of the kids is hanging on for dear life to the top branches of a tree while the remaining are scouring the grounds to find them. We have fun when we're together. Still, to this day, but I'm writing this because I was reminded of when it first happened. We'd been playing for hours. It was starting to get dark, but none of us minded. We knew the forest like the back of our hands. There were trails all over the place from all the years of us going back and forth. Myself, my name's Jack. My brother Chris, sister Lisa and all of our cousins, Olivia, Eric, Lenny, Randy, and Nellie, were all hiding. My older sister Emma, or Emmy, was the seeker in this game. Chris and I had climbed up in a tree because we knew that strategy had worked so many times in the past. It was low-hanging fruit, 
and we were snickering about it when we heard Emmy walk by, but she never looked up. She did get close, though, and that spooked me, so I decided I was going to switch things up. I left Chris up there, and I headed deeper into the forest looking for the ideal hiding spot when I saw this tree hollow. It was at the base of a tree right at its roots, was covered in moss, had vegetation just growing all over it, but it had looked like I could fit in it. I was the runt of the litter after all. I wouldn't be surprised to have been able to fit in there. So I went a little bit deeper than maybe I should have into the forest, and curled up among the roots and I lay there. I heard my siblings and cousins squealing, laughing, and running in the distance as each of them was found. I was a smart kid, though. I kept laying there, kept quiet. I was pretty sure I was the only one left. I wasn't surprised when I heard the crunch of feet on the forest ground getting closer to the area where I was hiding. And I was so proud when I heard them pass by and very slowly head away. They weren't going to find me. Not a freaking chance. And I knew that as I held my breath and looked up through the tangled roots covering me, when I saw not a single one of my relatives. Instead, I saw a monster. A few trees down from me, it was walking slowly, as if searching or listening. It was this sort of whitish-gray color, decaying. It looked sickly. It looked like it was dying. It was hunched over almost like it intended to be on all fours, but its front legs or arms just weren't long enough. Its legs, though, bent backward like a deer's might. It was looking. It was looking up in the branches, it was looking all around, it was looking for something, and I just didn't want to be that something. Now, I was praying that my whole family would come running through the trees, screaming my name, but I was alone. I was a scared little kid trying not to pee myself in a tree hollow. It was slowly moving away from where I was. And the instant I couldn't see its twisted body, I crawled out of the hollow and ran back as fast as my feet could carry me. When I saw the other kids' flashlights shining, I started crying and screaming for help. I ran straight to Chris, and I couldn't manage to get another word out through the sobbing until we were inside. I told everyone what I'd seen. I told them that those woods were dangerous, and they laughed it off. My mom comforted me, of course, but I knew she didn't believe me. She believed that I was scared, and wanted to protect me, but didn't believe in what I was scared of. I slept with my brother that night, and at some point in the night I started hearing noises from outside. The bedroom was on the second floor of the house. And it was summer, so the window was open, of course. What was odd was that I didn't hear anything else. No crickets, no owls, no sort of midnight forest sounds that you'd expect to hear. It was dead silent. Except for one thing. These noises. Almost like crying. 
whimpering, like a wounded animal of some sort. I wasn't scared, I was worried. I couldn't bear to think about an animal being in pain, and I crept out of bed and made my way over to the window. I pulled the curtain aside to look outside and it was dark. It would be dark, but I mean it was so dense that I was struggling to see. I was looking in every direction for this crying animal and the sounds seemed like they were getting closer. Then my eyes spotted something, some motion on the edge of the forest and as I stared at the space, I found eyes looking back. Eyes like a nighttime predator's, reflective. The whimpering had stopped, and instead, very distinctly in Emmy's voice, I heard, Jackie, Jackie, come here. I was frozen solid. I knew my sister wasn't there. I knew it with complete certainty, but I couldn't take my eyes off of those shiny reflections. Jackie, come here. It said again. And this time I closed and locked the window and closed the curtains. Oh, I was scared. A kind of primal fear I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. I got back in bed and snuggled up close to my brother. I was freezing. I felt so cold from the terror I felt. I remember being curled up in a ball pushing against him. Then it just didn't call out again. It was entirely silent and all I could hear was my brother snoring softly beside me. I fell asleep eventually and I woke up to a bright shiny morning and I told myself that I'd had a bad dream. I'd imagined the whole thing. It was a rough nightmare that my brain fed me because of what I saw in the woods. I remember feeling so deeply alone lying there in that bed. I didn't know how to come to terms with what I was telling myself was a nightmare. I didn't know how to come to terms with what had happened. And I didn't have anyone to talk to about any of these things because nobody believed me. I didn't go out playing with the kids that day. I hung around the house and pretty quickly my mom realized that I hadn't slept off what I was feeling. She didn't try to talk to me about it or comfort me, but she did get me helping with, Oh, can you peel this? Or, Jackie, can you put these away? Or, Honey, can you see if Nana wants something? It kept my mind off things at the very least. We left the day after. Everyone back to their homes and that was it. A few years later, I remember having a chat with my grandma and nothing related to what I experienced but she was mentioning just how much she hated that us kids would walk through the forest to get to her. How unsafe that was. She would always count the minutes and make sure she was waiting out on the porch at the right time. I thought she meant bears or bobcats or that kind of thing, so I assured her that we'd never seen any on our way. Then she told me that wasn't it that there were things far more terrifying than bears living in those woods. It was the first time I thought someone had validated my experience. But she didn't have much more to say after that. Eventually, like everyone else, I grew up and moved on, making a life of my own. Which brings us to the next stage of my life. I had met Josie at college. 
I was this English literature major dweeb with my friends at the college pub, and she was the gorgeous bartender I babbled dumb questions at. Josie and I dated for some years, my entire study career essentially, before we got married. We lived in a little apartment on the East Coast until we realized that my Masters of Slavic Languages and Literature wasn't going to make us a lot of money right now. So I became more of a house husband, while her marketing degree put more food on the table than I could ever hope for. There was quite a bit of strain on us, financially and emotionally, and we decided about three years ago that it was time to move. We decided to suck it up and go back home. We ended up moving in with my grandparents. No offense to my parents, but I was more than happy to not move back in with them. That ship had long sailed. Moving back home was the next step we were not prepared for. We couldn't possibly have been prepared for it. We were making a decision to help us towards the future we imagined together. And we had to remind ourselves and each other of that for our first few months there, until we settled. A few weeks before Thanksgiving, one of my childhood friends, Alan, invited us for a dinner party. Not the fancy kind, it was the beer and pizza and board games kind of dinner party. We don't do fancy in our neck of the Roanoke Woods. We're all a bit tipsy and we're in the middle of a game of charades. Four couples, boys versus girls, it was chaos. We had the patio door open because it was so damn hot from us buffooning around. And also, so Daisy, Alan's dog, could run in and out to her little spaniel heart's content. Josie's turn was up, and I remember watching her so intently. I remember her face, and how her expression twisted in confusion when we heard the first, Help me! Everyone stopped. Dead in our tracks, full stop, I couldn't even hear anyone breathe. Alan's wife asked out loud if everyone heard that, to which we all mumbled in response. She turned the patio light on, although it didn't do much good of illuminating the darkness. Josie went outside and stood on the deck, looking around. There was a scream, and Alan and I stepped outside, too. It all had come from straight ahead. I mean, a straight shot from where we were standing. The sound seemed to have come just deep enough into the woods where we couldn't see anything. The other two men, Alan's friends, I can't remember their names for the life of me, but they walked out too. We stood there in silence. Nothing else was happening, and one of them said that we probably heard an owl cry and all mistook it. But in my head, I was already back to being that small boy hearing, Jackie, come here, from just outside of my range of view. It didn't feel right. Please. Please, please, the voice came again, each word more panicked, more fearful than the last. I could feel my body tense up, and I realized all of us were now looking to the left. The voice, the sound, whatever, had migrated over. Alan and his wife dashed back inside and quickly emerged with a couple of flashlights. Not enough for everyone. We would have to use our phones, but we had to investigate they said. What if someone is actually injured out there? They said. We have to help. Josie, 
ever the voice of reason said that was stupid and we should call the police instead. Alan argued that whoever is out there needs help now, not in an hour when the cops finally make it, but she insisted. So she called and told dispatch what was happening, that it sounded like there was an injured woman in the forest and that she needed help. They said they would dispatch someone, of course, and Josie refused to leave the house. She picked up Daisy and sat down on the couch and looked at all of us. Help me! Help me! The voice came again, this time sounding like choked sobs, this time coming at us from the right. Alan said he was going in. Everyone else hesitated and clung to the porch, but I couldn't let my friend go in alone. I didn't want him to be in danger. We each had a flashlight as we went into the woods, on the right, and we were calling out for anyone that might have been there. Hello, we're here, hello, where are you, say something, etc. and so forth. Every step we took was another holler. Then the voice cried out for help again. This time it was deeper into the forest. It was luring us. It was trying to get us further away from anything that could help us. And I felt that in my guts. I grabbed Alan's arm and I told him we could not go any further. We had to turn back. Now. He didn't appreciate that sentiment. He argued that we had to keep going. We had to help this person. I was terrified. I was terrified that he wasn't going to listen. And I didn't know what to do, so I kept going with him. Just going deeper into the forest with him. I couldn't see the lights of the house behind us anymore when the voice cried out again. It was so close now. But I couldn't tell where it was coming from. I couldn't see anyone anywhere. Help me! The scream came once more from my right, and I turned my head. And all I saw was white, sickly, moldy, white, covered in sores and peeling skin, bald, huge black eyes, such long limbs and backwards legs. This creature from my childhood nightmares was terrifyingly close to us. Alan pulled out a gun because, of course, Alan had a gun with him all the time, and started screaming with a terrified tone I'd never heard from him before. My mind only said, death, on repeat, and I couldn't get my mouth to make that word. Alan shot. Three times he shot, and we both ran as if on cue. I've never run that fast in my life. Ducking branches and jumping over roots, I knew it was right behind us at every step. I thought we were done for, until we saw the lights, and suddenly it wasn't there anymore. We ran out of the forest and straight into the house, locked the door, and drew the blinds. Alan and I stood there together, facing the covered windows and door, panting, not saying a word. He then turned and left, presumably to get rid of the gun before the cops showed up, which they did, about 15 minutes later. Alan and I told the officers everything, pointed to where the sound was coming from, explained how quickly the sounds moved, 
and finally told them that we'd gone into the woods and run into a creature. To which, in turn, they replied that we're lucky they're not charging us with misuse of 911 services and that we should sober the fuck up. Neither of them checked. They didn't care. It was probably the most ridiculous call they'd gotten all year. But the group of us knows it was real. And Alan and I know a heck of a lot more. He put a fence up so Daisy doesn't wander into the woods. He's put up lights so he can see better and reinforced the locks. Alan has been scared ever since. I have been too, but I just avoid the woods. I pretend they're not there. And when we drive through, we make sure it's not late at night or too early in the morning. We stick to our routines. And in a year or two, we'll be out of here and in our very own little home away from whatever the hell is going on in the forests of these Appalachians. I don't know what it was that I saw, what it was that wanted to hurt me, but these mountains need to come with a warning picket sign every 12 fucking feet. All the way down the mountain range, all through the forests, people need to know that if you wander through here mindlessly, you might not make it out. And that no matter what you see, no matter what you hear, don't go to investigate. It doesn't need your help. Regards, Jack. Jack, thank you so very much for sharing your extraordinary experience. The sheer horror of what you went through transcends the boundaries of imagination, the boundaries of any sort of thought or preconceived notion. And I am so sorry that your experiences were faced with dismissal and skepticism. But your courage in revisiting these moments, no matter how unnerving, just shows what a strong person you are. The encounters you described sound like something out of a nightmare. Some creature seeking to lure and terrify. And it serves as such an important reminder that sometimes, the most alluring landscapes hide the darkest secrets. Thank you once again for entrusting me with your tale. May your journey ahead be filled with understanding, closure, and a sense of safety far away from the shadows that once haunted your past. If you have a story of your own, don't hesitate to submit it to spectralsojourns at gmail.com or get in touch with us on our Instagram or Facebook at Spectral Sojourns. Now as we bid you farewell, dear travelers, let tonight's tale be a reminder that the boundary between horror and reality is but a fragile thread, ready and willing to unravel. Tread softly as you emerge from the abyss, and may the whispers of this spectral sojourn haunt your dreams till next we meet. Sleep well, if you can.